you have your Bibles, we will be in Titus. If you're not sure where that is, go to the back and then go like 10 books towards the front and you'll find this little book of three chapters called Titus. So the good news is we won't be here too long because I don't, uh, we could read the whole book and we could be done in 30 minutes, but uh, I'm not going to read it all. It's a little bit of a difficult challenge to survey any book. Some of the shorter books are a challenge because they're so short and some of the longer books are a challenge because they're so long. Uh, but it's good. We have about 10, maybe 10 more weeks, uh, and then we'll be done. Uh, not with the scriptures, but walking through each book of the Bible. We've been doing that for some 55 weeks or something like that. Uh, so the book of Titus, a little bit of background before we start, uh, into it. It's a letter, of course, written by Paul. It's, uh, uh, it's one of Paul's, uh, Letters. It's much like First and Second Timothy uh, and uh, the prison uh, letters. The prison letter uh, written. Um, Paul's writing this to Titus. Titus is one of his guys in the ministry that he uh, has been a big help on his missionary journeys as he's gone through the different areas. Uh, and uh, at this point, he wants. He's been to the Crete, which is the little island uh, in the Mediterranean Sea, south of Greece. Uh, it's just a tiny island, uh, and Paul has gone through there and kind of, you know, started a few little churches or the gospel spread a little bit, but then he, as Paul does, he left and went somewhere else. Well, now he wants Titus. He's going to uh, send him back to Crete because they got a bunch of little churches, uh, and the churches are having some uh, faulty teaching that's entered it. They're not uh, organized very well, and so he's going to send Titus back to say, basically clean it up, set everything as it should be, get some elders, pastoral leaders that will lead the church in the right way and that will teach and guard against false teaching and will promote the right teaching of the gospel message. So the Cretan church is young, its members in it are inexperienced, Uh, some immorality, some just kind of doing what you feel has entered it, but also some heresy has infiltrated these churches. And we'll talk about that a little bit more, that he needs to counter these things that they tried to add to the gospel message. So basically, Paul says, Titus, you go there. He's pretty young, but go there and establish sound and healthy churches in uh, in Crete. Paul himself, uh, Paul, who he is, he's a Roman citizen born in Tarsus uh, near uh, modern Turkey. He was a prominent Jewish religious leader, highly educated as a Pharisee. Of course, y'all know the story, what happened to Saul and he came to Paul, Damascus Road, God blinds him, and then this huge transformation. And from that point on, he's not persecuting Christians. Now he's actually uh, sharing the gospel wherever he goes and does all of those things. Again, this is written about 63, 65 AD. Paul is, uh, is murdered or, or executed in about AD 67, so this is near the end of Paul's uh, Paul's life, his time, Nero's going to have him be executed, according to Second Timothy. Uh, the profile of Crete, Crete is fertile. It's an agricultural island located in South Greece in the southern Aegean Sea. There's disorder, there's false teaching that's threatening the churches in Crete, and uh, it's due to se- several things. One of it's they're just morally, they're lax, they're careless in their behavior. Even Christians and non-believers that come into the church, they're being careless and Paul has heard of it, and he wants Titus to go there to clean it up. 
And so he goes. So if you found the book of Titus, uh, we'll look at a few of the verses, and we won't be here too long tonight. It says in verse 1, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. And then verse 4, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. Timothy and Titus uh, Paul is very fond of them. He's like a mentor to them. He's trained them. Uh, and both these guys he considers to be like a son to him. Um, but here in the begins, he says he's a bondservant of God. This is the only time that Paul uses that phrase. Other times he calls himself a, a servant of Christ. It's a little bit unique there. Also, this salutation, this beginning of his letter is quite long for a very short letter of only three chapters. Uh, but he wanted to emphasize the purpose of the letter, which we'll unpack here as we go. Titus is identified as a true son in our common faith. Uh, he's endearing towards him. He considers him a true friend uh, as a writer and a reader. So he has a special relationship with Crete that Paul has been there. He knows it, how it is, and now he sends Titus, his associate pastor, to go there and set up some structure uh, in this church. Uh, in who they appoint as their leaders, but also uh, in what those leaders need to do in promoting the gospel, teaching, preaching the gospel, and then also uh, countering heresy, countering things. Don't let some things in the church or some people in the church that don't need to be in it because they're bringing the church down. So the first thing you'll see is he's going to talk about elders, uh, verse 5 through 9. This is probably... well. This is this and the first Timothy three, first seven verses of that are the qualifications of church leaders, pastors, elders, overseers of a church. And these are the qualifications. This is what uh, as Titus is sent there to try to appoint, go to each church in these little towns and, uh, and find the men that would possess these characteristics. He says he basically says looks for two things, but let's read the passage. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders. To set in order uh, is uh, the same, the Greek word there is the, we get the word orthopedic. Ortho is to set in order, just to place it in the right fitting. So orthopedic surgery and orthodontist, they want to set your teeth. I love the orthodontist. I gave, well, my parents gave a lot of money to them, and then, then I gave a lot of money to them, and it's great. But why why do that? Well, you want to set it in the right place, in the right order. So, Titus, you go there, and Paul says, Titus, you put in the right order the way the the church administratively should function. And where do you start? Well, you start with the head. So, he says, go there, set in order. Verse 6, if a man is blameless, the husband of one wife, having faithful children, not accused of dissipation or of insubordination, For a bishop must be blameless, that's the key word is blameless, Uh, as a steward of God, not self-willed, not quick-tempered, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but hospitable, a lover of what is good, sober-minded, just, holy, self-controlled. All of those could be grouped into one word. It should be a man of character. (laughs) High character, not perfect. Blameless doesn't mean Whoever is the pastor must be perfect without sin. There's only one man that's ever done that, 
And that's Jesus Christ. No other pastor, not Jerry Berry, not Jeff Franklin, not Keith Hamilton, is perfect. Uh, our wives would all tell you that. But, uh, but that's, it doesn't mean perfect. It means blameless, like if an accusation comes against this elder of this church, it doesn't stick to him because he's got such a high character, they know he would never do whatever is being accused of him. So he's to be above reproach. He's to be blameless. A lot of translations say above reproach. And I like blameless above reproach is great, but it's not perfect. Um, so they got to have high character. And then he'll say in verse 9, the other thing they got to have, holding fast to the faithful word as he has been taught that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict the gospel. So he's got to be a man of character, but then he also has to be uh, he has to be a person that is gifted. And gifted in what? Specifically for this setting, you've got to be gifted in teaching, uh, exegeting, uh, explaining, apply, applying the Bible uh, to God's people of that church. And then he ends it with, so much so you've got to know God's word so that you can contradict, counter the things that try to come into the church that need to be expelled. They don't need to be in the church because they're contrary to what the church should be about. So those two things. Uh, and... They're, they're balanced in what they need to be. Uh, any staff person needs to be a person of character and needs to be a person that is gifted. If you get out of balance, if someone's giftedness get them in such a great, whether it's writing books or whether it's their church is bigger and bigger and growing so much, you've seen it, you've probably heard some podcasts that yeah, it can go to a pastor's head. His character is not really up to his giftedness. And so it's out of line. And then before you know it, arrogance, pride, uh, and it can, be, it can ultimately cause him to, to lose a ministry. So you don't want that. You want a man that is solid, character, uh, based on these things. Husband of one wife is key. You, you see, he breaks it down even as, as in his family. It doesn't, uh, his children, how he, in his family, uh, he's, He's the protector of the house. He's, uh, his children don't have to bow to everything he says. They don't have to treat him like royalty. But you can see in the order and the function of his family, he can handle that, and therefore he can handle the spiritual leading of, the, of a church. Uh, so there's that. The other things, hospitable, um, sober-minded. He doesn't wrestle with alcohol. Self-controlled is a big one. A lot of these are fruits of the Spirit. Um, it is interesting that in Timothy, he, he talks about the qualifications also of deacons, but in Titus, Paul doesn't reference deacons. He just talks about the elders. So they need to have character, and they gotta be, um, they got to have giftedness in, it, in order to teach the word, imply the word of God. So get the right people in the right places on the bus, and then get the bus moving. Um, so start with that, the elders. And then why is it so important that they know God's scriptures, that they can teach it the gospel, that they can counter things that need to be out of it? Uh, Well, he's going to go on to the next section because in verse 10 it's going to say, watch out for some of these people that are already in these churches in in Crete. For there are many, verse 10, for there are many insubordinate, both idle talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert, whole households teaching things which they ought not for the sake and dishonest gain. So there's already people in the churches that he's like, you need to shut them, shut them up, shut them down. Is not helping the church. They are not teaching sound doctrine. And he specifically is going to say what 
what are these people? What are they teaching that is so uh, such a problem? And uh, sorry, you only have three pages. You think you wouldn't get lost in your notes, but I I did somehow. Uh, oh, that's why it was in the wrong order. Okay, that's good. I'll figure it out. Y'all just bear with me. All right. I'm sorry. This is not right. All right. Well, maybe I don't have all my notes I'm supposed to have, so that's even better. All right. That's where you uh, watch out. He's going to talk about uh, in verse ten those of the that of the circumcision. What the problem? And, and we still kind of do this uh, in churches. There's a tendency to do this as well. But there's a problem that these false teachers. Uh, have, have come in and added to the gospel the freedom that Christ gives to these mostly Gentiles, mostly new believers. There are some Jews that have come over that are there as well. But these uh, Judaizers are coming in and they're, uh, they're saying, okay, uh, you know, Jesus Christ, what he did, yes, the blood of Christ covered our sin, you believe that, yes, then you're one of us, all that. But then... Based on, they didn't have the, most of the New Testament at this point. They just have the Old Testament. What is the next thing you got to really do to become a Christian? Circumcision, which it was, there's tons of scriptures in the Old Testament say you have to be circumcised if you're going to be right with God. So they're going to go back to that. Uh, and it's not, it's not the freedom that Christ gives that they should live in. They're going to say, Jew, Gentile, whatever, uh, you have to get circumcised. They're going to add to the gospel message that Paul is trying to preach here and teach or Titus is, and, and these new believers. So the problem is, they, they expect everyone to have this circumcision. And, uh, and Paul is saying, no, if they truly understood the grace, the freedom that they have, they wouldn't add to and go back to the rules and the laws that they used to live under. But there's a tendency uh, in churches to kind of want to go back and make rules that are really, uh, some rules are not really in the Bible. There might be a tradition that this is the way we've always done it, uh, but there are some things that there should just be some freedom to have there. And this was one of those, those things. Uh, uh, interesting thing he does in verse, uh, verse 12. You know, first thing they teach you in seminary class is never stereotype all types of people. So you never say all millennials are whatever, all baby boomers are whatever, because there will be an exception to the rule regardless. Well, look what Paul does. Uh, He does a no-no. I'm sure he knows why. But verse 12, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. (laughs) What do you really think, Paul, about these people? Uh, And the testimony is true. (laughs) So he's going to use a general statement here, but... uh, he, he, he has, the, the Cretans don't have a very good testimony in the community. Believers are not believers as being anyone. They're liars. They're people that continually lie and do whatever's best for themselves. And then he'll go in in verse 14. There's Jewish fables. There's commandments of men who turn from the truth. And I think the biggest one here is this legalistic, uh, you have to go back by these rules that it was under the old covenant, but now there's a new covenant, which... It's going to be in Hebrews. It's going to be the whole issue in the book of Hebrews is, okay, new Christians, do they have to go back to the old rules or can they just be covered by God's grace to be free in Christ? Paul's going to always push and say they can be free in Christ. So 
there's this legalistic uh, tendency in this that's entering the church, and it's going to hinder the growth of the church and the witness of these churches uh, in that island of Crete. So Paul sends Titus there and says, go, uh, go deal with that, uh, and this legalistic idea. And you might say, well, we would never be legalistic in an independent Baptist church or a Southern Baptist church or a Christian church or a Bible-believing church or whatever term you want to call it, but are we not all prone to turn to a little bit of a legalism? Uh, the Sabbath. Now, I'm going to preach to the choir here a little bit. Hopefully, and this is recorded, so I hope I don't get myself in trouble. But uh, what does the Bible say about the Sabbath? Um, it says a couple of things. It doesn't say everything specific, like we like to add on to what the Sabbath should be, but it does say it should be holy unto the Lord. It should be set aside that you worship him, you honor him on the Sabbath, the day of rest. Why was the Sabbath established? It was established for our benefit, that we actually need it. If you do seven days the same thing every day, you will burn out at some point. You need a day of rest. And on that day of rest, you focus on God and you worship him. And then uh, the third thing it says is kind of basically don't, don't do what you normally do. So whatever you do professionally on this day, you don't do what you do as a profession. So if you mow lawns every day of the week, then don't mow lawns on the Sabbath would be a good rule of thumb. But, you know, you hear stories, and I haven't heard of it here, and no one that I've, but, you know, some lady sees a deacon mowing his lawn on a Sunday. And so she calls the church pastor and like, you need to discipline your deacon that's mowing his lawn on a Sunday. You know these kind of stories could happen, okay? Uh, that's, that's trying to add rules to things that is not in the scripture, okay? Unless he mows lawns every day, he's free to mow his lawn, if it needs to get done on a Sunday, and he's worshipped God already on that day, then he's free to do that. So there's freedom. Um, where there is freedom and God allows freedom, take the freedom. Um, does it say in the Bible how many times you should go to church on a Sunday? No. So what have we done? I've grown up in the church, okay? So you go... Uh, my dad was on staff, so I was there at Sunday school. Probably I was there for a pre-band worship, whatever. I just sat and tried to be good. Then you go to Sunday school. Then you have the worship service. Then you might have a potluck dinner on the grounds back in old days. Then you might have a meeting, committee meeting they got to go to. Then you got to have a youth choir, children's choir thing. And then you have a Sunday evening church. And maybe if you're lucky, you make your kids, you threaten them, you make them take a nap. And then everyone gets home, you go to bed, and you wake up Monday morning, and you're mad. And everyone can't function. Was that a day of rest? Not really. A lot of churches, I am not here to stir up a controversy, but a lot of churches have done away with Sunday nights. Now, this is where you have to search in your heart, where you would stand based on God's word. If this church said, I'm going to do away with Sunday nights, would you lean towards legalism? Slash, this is the way we've all done it. That, that slash, this is the only way you could get into heaven. If you keep it always as is, or would you say, well, if there's freedom in the scripture, doesn't say that. And as long as people are keeping the, holy, the Sabbath holy, you're having a time. Now it says, don't forsake the assembly together. You're not just Zooming worship. No, you're actually in person. You're, you're, you're offering your worship to God. You're, you're with his people in person in his place. Whether or not you do that one time or two times on the same day, you can still have worship. 
And if you spend some time with your family on the day of worship and you're not doing what you normally do, and maybe you have family time, maybe you do, who knows what you do. You could probably watch a football game, maybe play golf. I don't know if you could shop. I don't know if that would be allowed on Sunday. I don't know if I should. But uh, all right, that's it. I am not saying that we are doing away with Sunday night church, but I am going to say that isn't it the mentality that the way we've always done it is the way we always done it. And if any change comes about that rocks that boat, we all get uncomfortable. Why do we tend to go towards the rules when we shouldn't go to the rules? Because we actually get comfortability and we get set in our ways that we have to do it this way. Now, if there is freedom biblically that you can do things that might be better for the church, it might function better for the churches as a family or as a whole, then some of those things, the leadership, the, the elders that are approached, that, that are hired, should, and the deacons, and there should, there should, they check into that. I know of a lot of churches that do not do this on Sunday night, and they're still worshiping somehow. Um, and I will tell you, being that I've been here on every Sunday night, well, during the year, for 11 years, the attendance on Sunday night church in a Baptist church is way less than what it is on a Sunday morning. People tend to give, they might give two hours to church maybe a week, maybe or two times of church a week. So if they come on Wednesday night and they come on Sunday morning, that's like a third time if they come on a Sunday night. And the way our culture is kind of geared up and the way we function, and nowadays there's so many conflicts, and I'm not here to argue right or wrong, but tournaments are scheduled. Sunday's not considered like you can't schedule something on a Sunday anymore. That's, that's absurd. Now, parents have to make that stance themselves. But uh, it's just something to think about. We say we would never be legalistic, but I'm, I'm suggesting to you that in some ways we are. We're quite legalistic. Um, but false teachers, uh, don't let them add to the gospel or subtract from the gospel. And make sure they teach sound doctrine. That's going to be the second thing in chapter 2. He turns his attention now that he's got the leaders there and they're going to counter the false teaching that's come in and into the church. Uh, now he goes and he's going to address how the congregation should act. Uh, and uh, he stresses the importance of the spiritual life of believers uh, as the best defense against heresy that's entering the church. Uh, so verse 1, But as for you, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. Sound doctrine. Uh, it must lead to ethical uh, conduct in the lives of people in the church. Uh, you must see it by how they live their lives. And he's going to talk about specific groups of people here uh, and, uh, and how they should function together within the church. Uh, verse 2, that the older men be, and it's, it's very specific in the certain things he says for certain groups of people. Uh, the older men be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith, in love and patience. The older women, likewise, that they be reverent in behavior, not slanderous, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. So we got older men, older women. Uh, verse 4, that they admonish the young women to love their husbands, to love their children. Who should do that? The older women should, uh, should help teach the younger women. Uh, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. And then last, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded or self-controlled. That's all he says for the young men. Just be self-controlled. I, I'm raising a young man. If I can just teach my young man to be self-controlled, I've done something. Uh, it's, not, it's not a coincidence the specific task he asked for each group to work on because those are the things they need to work on. Uh, but the, the, the main theme he's trying to say, Paul is trying to say here, is in, within the church, 
there should be a thing, a thing that should happen, and the nation of Israel was not very good at, at this thing actually happening. But there should be this thing, this transfer of faith from one generation to the next generation to the next generation. And from the old to the young, the old men, the old women, the young women, the young men, the faith is passed on. Now, within the family, for sure, mom and dads and grandparents can pass their faith to their kids. But in their church, older men passing it on to younger men. Older women passing it on to younger women. Notice it doesn't go from young to old. It doesn't work that way. It goes from old to young. Okay? So Paul is going to say that this transfer of faith has to happen. And if it doesn't happen, then it's a problem for the church. Um, I'm just going to, yeah, I'm just going to step on all the toes tonight. So this will be a great one to, you know, hand out to your friends, the recording of it and stuff. And watch King hang himself, Keith hang himself. But uh, uh, so another thing that's happened in church, kind of uh, people have kind of gotten into their own, uh, their own, it's kind of backed off a little bit. But I remember being the son of a music minister, the worship wars. Remember the worship wars? Uh, you might have lived through it, and I'm not sure if Kelvy went through it as much as, other than maybe removing a pipe organ or something, but, um, and bringing in drums. That might be the beginning of worship wars. But uh, there's this, uh, was, is a mentality that my style of, pref- my preference of worship, okay? The older generation preference of worship versus the younger generation preference of wor- worship, they're quite different. If you're not sure, you don't have kids or you've forgotten, Okay? Uh, and I realize I have mostly uh, older generation in here a lot, okay? Uh, and I, being a son of a music minister, I, I lived through the change, okay? My dad, when he was music minister for 25 years, they started and they had the 100-member choir loft and the 100-member choirs. They had the pipe organ on the left and the piano on the right. There were no drums. Those were from Satan. Uh, and that was it. And you sang the hymns, and you sang every verse, just as I am, all six verses. Man, that's a lot of verses. Uh, and some of those just kind of, but you don't really know what the words you're singing, but man, you could sing that tune because you do it every week. Okay? You would sing three things, have a special music, and that would be the, that is how you worship. That is the right way. And there's probably still many of you in here that say, that is the right way. It's in the Bible. It's, it's the right way. Um, younger generations, as, as church music has changed, church choirs, uh, most churches today, if they have a choir, it's because they have a huge history of having a choir, and they do it so well that the choir will never uh, fade off. Uh, the last year and a half didn't help choirs, <laughs> or really church worship as a whole, but uh, uh, church choirs, and they say church choirs may come back, and they could could come back. But generally, a lot of churches now go to this praise band uh, mentality. And you might have a praise cor- uh, band of singers, you know, six singers or something with this band and whatever. So, and then, you know, the, the 7-11 songs, you know, I've heard of those. It's not the gas station down the road. Um, 7-11 songs are seven words 11 times over and over again. And that's, and that's it. Now, that's, the, that's how the older generation calls the modern-day songs. There is some truth in that. However, there is repetition in just about every song. If you don't have any repetition in the song, no one can remember it, and so you don't sing it very much. There has to be some repetition. Uh, but uh, there's this, this uh, style of music. Uh, the band has come in. Now there's drums. 
Uh, I'm not really for the fog machine and doing this whole concert vibe thing. I'm like, if I want to go to a concert, I'll go to a concert. I just want to worship God and, and sing with his people. But a lot of churches go to the black box and you dim the congregation. You don't even know if they're there. You have like professional artists that have all these albums and they're touring and everything and they come and lead worship on Sunday. I'm not sure. I'm not really for that. I'm like, eh, I don't know about that. Are they doing it for the money or are they doing it because they love and want to use their gifts for God? Anyhow, challenge for all of us, wherever preference you have. And I do like our church is, I would consider it a blended, uh, a blended style of music and worship. The old timers say we don't do enough hymns. The young people would say we don't do enough modern day songs. And that's where a blend is. Here's where I don't like. A lot of churches do a contemporary service. Well, first you do the traditional service at 8 a.m. when the older people are up. They've been up for five hours, but they're, they're still barely up, but they're up. That was rude. I didn't mean that. But 8 o'clock, first service always is the traditional because the young people, they're not even up yet. They don't know the sun is up. And then you have Sunday school, and then you have the contemporary service. You know what that really is, right? It's the old person church and the young person church. You have two different churches at the same place. When you do that, you have a hard time doing this. You have the hard time for the older women to pass on to the younger women, and you have a hard time for the older men to pass on to younger men. We have two different churches going on. And I think the challenge for, and I'm approaching 50 myself, but the challenge for the older generation is you need to realize that you might have to give a little in order to attract the younger generation, and you are the more mature person. You have been, most likely, you've been walking with Christ a lot longer than the younger generation that got their preferences. If anyone can set their preferences aside, which generation should it be? It should be the older generation. Because why? You understand the legacy, the transfer of the faith has to happen to get the young people to come in the doors because the young people most likely aren't going to come in the doors if it's a church that's doing things 40, 40 years ago the way church was done. Some things have to change. Some things don't need to change. But some things you do to get the younger generation to come. I like that our church, it's not just the style of worship, but we do things like Iron Man, and we do things like uh, the ladies, uh, well, we do crossover for men. I forget what the ladies belong, become. I, I got that wrong. I wasn't invited for some reason, but... Uh, become, uh, but that's, that's, that's teaching young women and young men to become uh, mature in their faith. And to have older men and women pouring into them is huge. It's huge. That's why we try to do some of those things to pass on this generational transfer of faith. So I think you see that in this passage. But also look at, a, uh, look at verse 11. Another key thing is about God's grace and understanding God's grace. Uh, Verse 11 through 14. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the key verse is 14. Whom gave himself for us that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. So he's going to talk about God's grace. God's grace is key for Paul's teaching. It is the key. If you understand God's grace, then you don't add to all the things I have to do. No, you're not saved by works, you're saved by faith through God's grace. It's this gift that was given 
Jesus Christ dying on a cross for us, we have to accept in faith this free gift. Um, He gave himself for us, and why did he do that? Jesus died to redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself a people, his own special people. So in uh, seminary terms, there's three big words that we love to throw around, uh, and the three words are justification, sanctification. What's the third one? Glorification. You've been to seminary. That's good. Glorification is the third one. So uh, glorification is uh, these stages of things that are going to happen for people that put their faith and trust in Christ. Glorification is Jesus is going to come back. He's going to ban Satan. He's going to set up a new kingdom. He redoes heaven and earth, makes a new one, and then everything's fully glorified. That will happen at some point. It's not going to happen right now. Before that happens, that's the last one that happens. Before that happens, the first one that happens is justification. Justification is when you hear the truth about the blood of Jesus, whether it's in this setting or at a camp or at a vacation Bible school, you hear uh, through the teaching, preaching of the word, or maybe through someone sharing one-on-one with you just the truth of Scripture and God's plan of salvation. The Holy Spirit slowly teaches you what it means, and you put your faith and trust into Jesus Christ and his Holy Spirit and what he says to you. When that happens, when you become saved, a believer, a new Christian, God declares two things that happen to your life at that point. He declares two things for you. According to 2 Corinthians 5.21, it says, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So two things, justified. If I'm justified, then God declares me sinless based on the blood of Jesus Christ. All my sin went on him and his without sin, came to me. And then secondly, the righteousness of God, he considers me to be righteous unto God. You're justified. The one that happens in between being saved and then glorification, that one day will happen, is sanctification. It's the, it's the journey in the middle, in, the, in between. Uh, I am saved, but I'm not yet fully glorified, and so I'm in some transitional phase here. And God wants to, to, what he's declared about me being, he wants to place that in my life. He wants to change me from the inside out. He wants to grow me in my walk with him by reading his word, by doing good works. Good works in this little three chapters is mentioned some six times. Paul is going, in other letters, he's going to say, yeah, it's not, you're not saved by your works. But don't think, Paul doesn't think he wants Christians to do good works. He does. In this letter particularly, he's going to say it six times. Do good works. Do good works. Why? So your community sees the difference that Christ makes in your life. If you understand grace, and you understand who you are, then you'll, you'll take it, it will be important to you that how you live your life matters. It matters to God, who bought you with the price of his, for the death of his son. He's now your father, your heavenly father. You're adopted into his family. You're a child of God. But it also matters to the community how you live your life, which is why Paul is going to say, uh, you know, things like he's going to redeem you from every lawless deed. He wants to purify you for himself. God wants to uh, God wants you to follow the things that are going to last to seek after those things. So it's this challenge uh, to these believers in these churches to uh, make a difference in your community, serve God, do the good work so people know uh, that God is you're his child and you're serving him.
So you have to understand God's grace. And then chapter 3, as he wraps up the letter, uh, verse 1 and 2, he talks a little bit about how you relate to authorities. Remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work. There's one of those times. To speak evil to no one, to be peaceful, uh, peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. It never mentions Facebook, but if you're not sure if you should make that ugly comment to whatever person that you would never say it to their face, uh, you should be peaceable to all people and show humility. If that's you on how you do on the social media, great. If it's not, uh, the Bible would say you're in the wrong. Because you and I both know everybody is on the social media <laughs> and following all of who's watching, watching who and stuff. So, uh, But even in, in the authorities... Depending, you know, whether or not you voted for whoever's in the office or not in the office, uh, God placed that authority over you, and you're supposed to treat them respectfully. You're not just supposed to badmouth them. You're not supposed to uh, do things unless they're counter, you know, countering your beliefs that you, as a Christian, things you should be doing because you follow and obey God. If they're saying, no, do something that totally contradicts his word, then, yes, you can take a stand. Um, but so there's that. Um, and, you know, there might be an objection, well, why should I be, why should I honor and treat someone that way that's not even a believer? And then he counters that in verse 3, and he goes on. It's like, yeah, remember who you are before you met Christ. You were that person. You were that person that was doing all those things. With, before any of us knew Christ, we were all sinners. We all did things, whether we were 5 or whether we were 35, uh, now, if you're five, you're like, I really, you know, I lied to my mom once, and that was bad. I feel bad about it. But, yeah, well, that's your sinner. Yeah. But if you're 35, you might have had a little longer to do some truly sinful things. But the truth of it, he's trying to say is, only, it's only because of the mercy of Jesus Christ that any of us have a right relationship with God. You're no better based on who you are and what you've done than anyone that doesn't know Christ. The only thing that makes you better is you know Christ and who he is. That makes you better. Um, he poured out his love on us abundantly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. He justified us by his grace. We should become heirs according to the hope of eternity. Uh, and then he ends it again with avoid dissension, which that can happen in a lot of churches, verse 9 through, uh, 10, 9 through 11. Avoid foolish disputes, genealogies, contentions, strivings about the law, for they are unprofitable. Reject a divisive man after the first, second uh, admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. There are times when the elders that have been appointed in a church need to take action to do some church discipline. It's also in Matthew mentions the okay to have some church discipline. And there's an order or a way to do that. Uh, you know, approach the person of their sin by themselves. If that doesn't work, then bring some witnesses. If that doesn't work, you know, that, that kind of a thing. Uh, and then he ends it by talking about some people he wants to meet. He ends in verse 14 again with good works. Uh, and he ends it with, all who are with me greet you. Greet those who love us in faith. Grace be with you all. So it's a very short letter, uh, and, uh, but he starts with appointing the elders so that they know their character, uh, they're gifted in what they're doing. Appoint them so that they can contradict those that are teaching heresy and things that should not be added or subtracted from the gospel. Then he talks to about the congregation. Are you... Uh, are you uh, your witness and who God has called you to be? Are you, are you shining that light in your community? Are you different from the community? Or are you just like them? 
May you be different in how you show love, how you treat your fellow brethren or sister in Christ. May there be a generational transfer of faith that's happening between the young and the old, or the old to the young. Uh, And uh, may it all be done as we do that. It can only be done because we understand grace and that grace has changed our lives. And then we can offer that grace to others. So that is my summary of Titus. And I realize it's only 717, but it's only three chapters. If we could read it all, if y'all want, a verse at a time. Are y'all going to be okay if, we, if I pray and wrap up? Y'all can fellowship, drink some more coffee in the lobby, do what you need to do. Uh, but Philemon will be next, and then we're, we're approaching the end. Let me close with prayer, and we'll go. Holy Father, I thank you for being a, a gracious God that sent your Son to die for our sin that you do declare us to be righteous and to be your children if we put our faith and trust in you in you and what you did. But may we, as we are, are, are Christians, may we be reminded, as this letter so eloquently says, that we should, uh, our witness should speak of who you are and what you've done for us and how we treat others and how we support uh, the leadership of our church or how we even elect the leaders of our church. Um, May we be challenged to not add to your gospel, not to become set in, in legalistic ways or things that are not necessarily in your scriptures just because traditionally we've done always done this way. May we be open to your leadership through your Holy Spirit, through the leaders of the church, that unless it's biblical, may we allow you to lead, lead our church. And uh, we do pray for, uh, that you continue to bless our church. Thank you for the leadership we have, and uh, thank you for the people we have and for the things that you're doing through the church for your glory. Pray that you would continue to do that, and uh, it's all by your grace, and uh, we'll give you the glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen.